You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, let us open our Bibles at the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25, the verses 31 to 46. In these chapters in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is instructing his followers and his church of all ages by means of parables as well as various analogies. And here we come to the sheep and the goats, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, You did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Here we reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the Church summarizes and confesses it in Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ descended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us as members. And second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven 
The very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what is it that makes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, such an awesome Savior? There are many ways to answer that question. Some would say it has to do with his nature being both God and man. Others say it would have to do with his words and especially those marvelous parables. And then there are others who would stress his miracles of healing, of exorcism, of raising the dead. Oh, and some would say, what about his mission to save? And not to be overlooked, others say, is his sacrificial death even on a cross? And now, of course, all of these answers ring true. And together they highlight the fact that it is really impossible to boil the uniqueness of our Savior down to one specific thing. His greatness, his specialness resides in many, many things. There are just so many sides to him. Why, you can even say that he is, in a sense, inexhaustible. That's the teaching of Holy Scripture. And that's also, by the way, the message of Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Once more, it is a faithful echo, a sure summary, a steady guide as to what it is that the Scriptures reveal about our Savior Jesus Christ, His person and His work. So I preach to you this afternoon on the theme, Christ is head today and is judge Tomorrow. And you'll notice in your liturgy sheet, today as head he is our, and then you have a bunch of blanks, and tomorrow as judge he will be our, and you have more blanks. We'll come to that in a moment. Well, beloved, when was the last time that you were told to take your pen to church? I know that some of you do it automatically because you are in the habit of taking notes, but To be told to do so or instructed to do so is something else entirely different. But yet that's not all, for if you look at your liturgy sheet, you can see that there are blanks listed under the theme of this afternoon's sermon. So when was the last time that you came to a worship service and the minister gave you some blanks to fill in? Again, that too, I admit, is unusual. Children are supposed to fill in the blanks. Adults don't do that kind of stuff. Well, today you might say is a bit different. And why is it different? Well, because I want you to see very clearly what I am seeing in this Lord's Day, which deals with Christ as our head and as our judge. And as a matter of fact, I see three special things mentioned under each of those headings. Well, that may surprise you, 
It surprised me in a way, too, I have to admit. How many times have I preached from the scriptures using the catechism as my guide? I'm not sure, although it must be close to 30 times or more. But yet, in all of those times of doing so, it seems continually there is something new. Another aspect to consider. And it's just one more reminder that we have not only an inexhaustible Savior, we also have an inexhaustible gospel. If we're prepared to do a little digging, it always offers up new treasures, new delights, new blessings. So let's see. You'll notice, beloved, for openers here in Lord's Day 19, we are to deal with two expressions or statements taken from the Apostles' Creed. The first one is that Christ Jesus sits at the right hand of God. You know, the Catechism has dealt now with his nature as well as with his names and also with his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And last time we spent time, Pastor de Jong did, on the Ascension. And now it is actually on to his enthronement. For when Christ ascended into heaven, he did not just arrive there and go for a stroll or on an extended holiday, although he may have needed one. No, he was immediately subjected to a command. God the Father said to him, sit. Sit down. And not just anywhere either. Well, God, the Father ordered him to sit at my right hand. You can read that in Psalm 110. Now, I think we know what that means. In Scripture, the right hand always represents favor and strength. If you're told to stand or to sit by someone's left hand in biblical times, that usually meant trouble and sometimes lots of trouble. But that was never the case if you were told to stand on the right hand. Because you see, on the right hand, the sun always shines and the benefits always flow and the blessings always come. And so it does with Christ. Having completed his saving work on earth and completed it perfectly, I might add, God the Father places on it the stamp of his divine approval. In commanding his son to sit down at his right hand, he is saying to him, you have done well, my son. You have done everything that I asked of you. And so Christ sits. He sits down. He sits down at the right hand. And now what? Well, beloved, now the ruling part begins. You know, Psalm 110 again makes that very clear. For after the command to sit comes this statement, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. You see, Christ is not just fetching compliments in heaven, nor is he resting there. No, he is working still. He's now called on to rule. Seated at the right hand, he rules the nations and the peoples and the kingdoms and the powers. 
Everything and everyone in heaven and on earth. It's all under his dominion. Did that catch him off guard? Did that surprise him? It would appear not. He knew what was coming, for remember what he said to his disciples shortly before he ascended. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what should go into that first blank on your liturgy sheet? It's the word ruler. Today, as our head, he is our ruler. Quite simply, earth is not a driverless planet. No, there is someone behind the wheel of our world, our universe, and even of our very own lives. Christ rules you and me and everything and everyone. But there is more, for he is not just ruling in heaven, he is also dispensing from heaven. We get that from a Bible passage such as Ephesians chapter 4. There Paul writes that once Jesus Christ is in heaven, he begins this business of giving gifts. In some sense, he continues to give to this world the gifts of rain and sunshine, seasons and life. But yet in a special sense, he gives to his followers the gifts of of leadership, of pastors and preachers and teachers and elders and deacons. And as well, he gives to each one of you as his children particular gifts like wisdom and, and knowledge and discernment. As well as gifts like love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. What he gives to the world are, you might say, maintenance gifts. What he gives to you and I are growth gifts, building up gifts, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and maturity of the faith. You know, the Catechism captures all of this when it summarizes as follows. First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Notice our head isn't stingy or cheap. He's sensitive and generous. He's gracious and giving. He knows that we are not yet in heaven, but already. He wants us to taste heavenly gifts. Through the Holy Spirit, who is really His Spirit, He's raining heavenly gifts down on our lives. And so, beloved, if the first blank should say ruler, the second blank should say benefactor. Our Savior, who rules us, rewards us as well. And that brings us to a third blank, and it reminds us that to ruling and dispensing, we need to add defending or keeping or or preserving. You might ask, why do we need defending? Because, very simply, beloved, because there are all of these enemies out there and in here. John refers to the world, the devil, 
and our very own flesh. And together they all threaten to undo us, to trip us up, to, to make us fall, to cause us to compromise, even at times to deny our faith. Why under normal circumstances they would even win. You know, like Peter, we may think a lot of ourselves and of our own abilities to stand straight and tall and firm. However, look at what happened to him. He ended up denying Christ not once or twice, but three times. And the only reason that Peter didn't fall totally off the map is because Christ, Christ kept him. And that underlines the fact that we all need, no matter how how tough we think we are, we all need safekeeping. And we all should gain immense comfort from those reassuring words of our Savior. I know my own and my own know me and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How great, beloved, to have Christ as our ruler, dispenser, and defender. So there's a third word to fill in the blank. Christ, our head, is also our great and sure defender. In and through him we shall not fail or fall. But then, beloved, if Christ is our head, he's also our judge. Now, we've been hearing a lot about that in our morning series of sermons on the book of Revelation. And some of you might even be inclined to think that this is a bit of an overdose here. And I have to say that I was kind of concerned about that in this past week until I actually took a a closer look at answer 52 of the catechism. And, you know, when you look at it, you see it's it's a beautiful, unique kind of treatment. And what do I mean? Well, when we hear Christ referred to as judge, we we immediately tend to step back and shy away from it all. After all, being a judge is not exactly an easy, attractive, or cozy position. Judges tend to be controversial. Judges also tend to be feared. Judges listen way and pass sentence. They can cause you to pay enormous fines. They can put you in prison and possibly even throw the key away. Sometimes they even sentence people to death. In short, judges are scary people. But now look at the approach of the catechism. He doesn't start with the scary stuff at all. Rather, it starts with a precious word of reminder. 
And how so? Well, it reminds us that Jesus or Judge Jesus is a vastly different kind of judge. For look, when he comes, it isn't all negative and dark and foreboding. The Catechism says, remember, this is the judge. The judge who has stood in your place and my place. Once upon a time, he came and he submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake. And not only that, but he removed all the curse for me. You may know the Catechism gets that from the Apostle Paul. Long ago, Paul wrote to Titus and reminded him about the fact that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own. In other words, Paul is telling Titus and us as well that we have a Redeemer and a purifier. We have someone who has paid our ransom. And someone who cleans up the mess in our lives and of our lives. Yes, and now this, this Redeemer, this Purifier is coming as, as our Judge. Judge Jesus is Redeemer Jesus. And you should not ever divorce the two, the one from the other. Because they indicate right away that we have a very special kind of judge. Indeed, he's so special that we need not be afraid of him. Instead of dreading his coming, we should look forward to his coming. And especially if our lives are filled with shadows and clouds and trouble and pain and sickness and hardship, We should welcome him with open arms. The catechism puts it so well when it says, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and I eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who has submitted himself for my sake to the judgment of God and has removed all the curse From me. In some ways, the most blessed words in this whole answer are the words, for my sake and from me. Take those words out of the answer and it totally changes. But they're there. They belong there. And they are there so that we can eagerly await. It's coming from heaven. Even his coming as judge. They're there to remind us that the one who is coming is our substitute, our, our representative, our, our stand-in, our mediator. And so right in tomorrow as our judge, he will be our substitute. Because our substitute is coming. And so is our king. The Catechism tells us next in answer 52 that he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. It has to be said those are tough, unsettling words. 
They remind us that the punishment that awaits the wicked is neither short nor light. It's long. It's everlasting. It's nasty because it's filled with condemnation. My first sight, we have this itch, perhaps this desire to try to tone down these kind of words, don't we? But I ask you, do we dare? For look, these are not our words. They are not the words of the catechism either. They are the words of Holy Scripture. And ultimately, they're words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. They come from Matthew 25 that we've read together. Because there our Lord is speaking about sheep and about goats. And you notice there are the sheep who listen to the Father and who live lives full of generosity, mercy, love, and compassion. And then there are the goats who do not listen to the Father and who are cheap and hard and hateful and indifferent. Two different types of people, two different kinds of lifestyles. But also Jesus has two different kinds Of destinies. He says then the unrighteous or the goats. Will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous. To eternal life. Now who's doing the talking here? Notice. It's the king. Verse 34. Verse 40, ultimately it is Christ the King who judges. It's our King who determines destinies. Yes, and who of us has the right to challenge this great King? Jesus Judge Jesus or King Jesus, if you will, is exercising his royal prerogatives here. He's dealing decisively with his enemies and our enemies. And take note of that expression. Our enemies are not always his enemies. But his enemies are always our enemies. The fact that we have enemies may be the result of our own bungling or sins or mistakes, or missteps. But the fact that he has enemies is never his fault. It's always theirs. And so what shall we write in the fifth blank? It's the word king. Our judge is our substitute, and he is our great And glorious king. And that leaves one last blank. What goes in there? What sixth or final thing shall we say about our head and about our judge? The catechism says that we should say this. Christ will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy 
and glory. You might wonder what kind of task does that describe? Who best takes, leads, and escorts us, as it were, to our glorious destination? What particular calling is in view here? Surely it's that of a shepherd. Read Psalm 23. Read John chapter 10. And together they remind us that it is a shepherd's task to tend, to feed, to guard, and finally to bring his sheep to safety and rest. Think of these words of our Savior. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. What's the ultimate aim of the shepherd? Is to have one flock. Is to have all the sheep together. It's to have them all enjoying fellowship, peace, rest, safety, and glory with him. Sounds like the end of answer 52 to me. That he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. One flock, one shepherd, one destiny is what it's all about. And so what's the sixth and the final word? It's that tomorrow as Christ, as judge, will also be our shepherd. And so you see, beloved ruler, benefactor, defender, substitute, king, shepherd, all of them apply to our Savior and our Lord. And they apply to us as well. Because really, we're the recipients of all of this wonder and this glory and these qualities. How rich we are in Him and in all that He does for us. And I would say to you, beloved, count these riches every single day. So often we fail to do that. We let all the messy stuff of daily living blot out all the blessings. But we need to count purposely our riches every day. You know, it's almost tax season. And that means that we have to sit down and we have to fill out forms, forms about income and expenses, deductions and exemptions, assets and liabilities. Truly, tax season is a time of year when we're reminded about how rich we are or how poor we are, how much we have coming to us or how much we owe. But, you know, besides all of that tax business, remember something else. And it's this. No matter what your T4 says, if you're in Christ, you are rich indeed. You're rich Beyond measure and counting. 
And even if you owe the government a ton of taxes, you're still rich. Because then you're rich where it counts. And where it lasts. You're rich in Christ. And really, that's all that really, truly matters. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.